Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 25, the one about lead generation and content, video lighting, Wikipedia, and Ghostbusters. Let's get on with the show. And welcome back to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We're here for more news, content, tech, and wisdom from the world of marketing. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast, and the host of the Rogerlog video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Hello, everybody. Oh, and it's also a pleasure to spend even more time with someone who's also on a mission, this time to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast and many other video series. Welcome, Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And to you, obviously, listeners, thank you for your support. This is episode 25. And in our own way, we're going to try and brighten your day, bring a bit of light entertainment and humor whilst we're trying to get through January. I don't know about you, Roger, but as I'm looking outside, it's gray, it's raining, it's cold, um, and what a better time to make a podcast. Absolutely. Well, yesterday, which would have been the 18th of January, was what the press call Blue Monday. Now, I've never bought into Blue Monday. Blue Monday was a signal single by New Order back in the 80s. That's about as far as it goes. But if you are feeling a little bit blue, we're <laughs> going to try and brighten it up for you. So let's do so by beginning with In the News. Yeah. One in four online purchases in the UK are now made as a result of interacting with a social media platform, with 35% citing convenience as the key purchase driver. Well, Disney Plus will add a sixth brand to its streaming service called Star. It will include TV series and movies from networks such as ABC, FX, 20th Century and of course Disney's own creative studios. Google has purchased Fitbit for $2 billion. After a huge amount of scrutiny by regulators, Google is now in a strong position to take on Apple and release the next generation smartwatch. And according to a report from LinkedIn, e-commerce, healthcare supporting staff, digital content freelancing, construction and creative freelancing are the UK's fastest growing job sectors. 71% of senior marketers expect to spend more time scrutinizing the language in, the, in their content in future marketing plans and budgets, according to a survey by Frazee. And US burger chain White Castle, which transformed about 300 of its location into a classic drive-ins, complete with car hop service for a socially distanced Valentine's Day date. EasyJet is producing a series of three-minute escape films and two guided meditation episodes in partnership with Mindshine to remind us how therapeutic travel can be. And FIFA has launched its own podcast, of course, in partnership with Universal Music Group. The first series features football players discussing key moments in their careers and how musicians inspired them. Wow, fantastic. So much about content, you know, content creation yeah. and being uh, being kind of innovative. But uh, I thought it was actually quite appropriate that you should have the news about language, according uh -huh. to Frazy, who is a uh -huh. um, kind of platform around language and using AI to help you create a content. 71% is a high number. People to scrutinize the language in their content in future marketing plans and budget. I sense this meets your approval, Monsieur Edwards. 
Well, it does, Pascal, because as you know, and as anybody who listens to this podcast or my own podcast, you'll know that I'm obsessed with keeping things simple and, and specifically in not using complicated language and management speak mumbo jumbo and gobbledygook and all that. So I hope that that's what they mean when they're scrutinizing their language. And that's not just sort of marketing speak for trying to make the language more nudgy or, or more persuasive. Simplicity, I, th- I still think, is the best way to engage people. Yes, you might want to give them a bit of a nudge or something like that, but that's what I hope it means. And if it does mean that, yes, it does get my approval. But having said that, I've never heard a phrasey. <laughs> no, it must be an American platform. I had a quick, quick look, and I, and I can see why they would release such a survey because it's part of their PR campaign. Uh, I sense that you know it is very much about language and, and engaging people with simplicity. The um, I have a sense, bear in mind, that's going to be almost like a running theme through today's um, podcast episode of the lessons of 2020. And I think because people have to engage very differently, perhaps took away some lessons. Disney Plus introducing a six brand as part of their streaming service, Star, which is essentially curating, collaborating with other TV networks. And I was told whether this should be part of in the news or, or, or something else. But I think for me, the reason I wanted to configure it is perhaps a reminder for all of us as content creators, content marketers, and business owners that collaboration and curation is also part of the kind of content marketing mix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do get a little bit concerned that they're lumping all of these brands underneath the Disney Plus brand. And again, you know, having just said, let's keep it simple when it comes to language, sometimes I just wonder whether we should keep it simple when it comes to brand hierarchies as well, uh, because there's quite a lot of stuff in there, and the, and the customer ultimately just wants good content. And even though it's important that these companies know that it's from FX or whether it's from Century Studios, it's the film or the TV series that the consumer is actually interested in, not which part of the studio it came from. So I, I do wonder about all of these sub-brands sometimes, I have to say. Yeah, and f- for me, when I looked into the details, so for, for launch, which will be in February, around most of the um, English-speaking world, then there'll be a rollout uh, of the, across other nations. When you look at the list of TV series and movies from ABC, FX, 20th Century Studios and more, I've seen all of them already, or most of them. So for me, it's not like a major selling point um, at all. But it was an interesting kind of uh, way in which people collaborate, you know, uh, including if you think about Google buying Fitbit, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've never had a smartwatch. My <laughs> wife has a smartwatch. She swears by it. Um, you know, the, the the closest I've ever get is downloading one of those apps onto my phone that records the number of steps you do when you go out for a walk or you go out for a run. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's not such a bad thing if, if somebody takes on Apple's monopoly position. I'd be quite happy to see that. Uh, it's, it, it staggers me the massive amounts of money that these transactions are going for, of course. That's very true. I mean, I don't know how many zeros, you know, I know how many zeros, but I don't think you could write a check. There'll be enough space in, in the box uh, to do so. The one that I want, I was keen to bring up today is also about adapting to circumstance. 
and therefore the US burger chain White Castle who think well the next big event after Christmas and New Year is going to be Valentine's Day and that's so what we're going to do about it and to kind of go for that kind of drive-in experience where you're going to be able to park in the um, in a par- in a parking space dedicated to you because you'll have to obviously book using an app and you're going to get a drive-in service I'm, I'm wondering if they might even add either a, a movie screening or even a podcast. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, and, and, I, and I like the idea of this. And we, we've seen sort of the same sort of drive-in cinema things happening here in the UK. I guess in the UK, we haven't got as much space as they have in the United States. So, you know, not many of the burger restaurants in the UK, apart from the drive-in ones, actually have that much car parking space. So I can't really see it happening here. But it is a it is a nice it's an American idea, isn't it? And I can just see a sort of Pulp Fiction Jack Rap Rabbit <laughs> Slims thing going on here, yeah. maybe with a stage with somebody dancing on it. And uh, and I was going to mention the the EasyJet one as well. You know that again, content based as you said, three minute films to remind us how therapeutic travel can be. I know how therapeutic travel can be. The problem is I can't do any of it at the moment, Pascal. That's the big problem. Um, and uh, it, it's a may, maybe it is because we've constantly been in this in and out of lockdown now. And having travelled so much in my adult life, I, I, I said before, I don't really miss air travel. Well, I, I, I miss the aeroplane bit. I don't miss the airport bit. Mm. But at the moment, I'm not sure I want to be reminded of how great travel is when I can't actually do it. Fascinating. I'd love to hear from you, viewers and listeners, how you feel about it. Is it okay and is it fair enough for two operators, airlines and more, to keep essentially reminding us that they exist and that they are looking into the, the future. But in doing so, what EasyJet can't do, of course, is promote a particular flight, I'd imagine. So they're doing some other form of content to remain uh, on their radar. Or do you take the position that we know you exist, we, we know who you are, where you are, when we are ready, we'll get back in touch with you. Interestingly, going to the press release issued by EasyJet, the reason they also went ahead with that form of content marketing is because this year the bookings are up compared to last year, which is understandable, with um, people already booking to go out and be away in May 20, 2021, which I think is uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I keep getting, I get emails from companies like Secret Escapes and from British Airways and from EasyJet, all encouraging me to book flights. And at the moment, I'm just not minded to book a flight for any time in the first half of this year. So, you know, all all we can do at this stage is is, um, pay attention to content efforts, see if that can be a source of inspiration. I mean, I'm also not sure about FIFA getting into the, the kind of podcasting bandwagon. It feels like it at this moment in time. But you know, they do have an audience. They do have um, guests that I'm sure will be of great interest to football fans. So yes, good luck to them. Good luck to them. Yep. I'm not a massive football fan, but hey. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, on the subject of content, Roger, let's move on to our next segment, which I know is one of your favourites, the content spotlights. And in this segment, Roger and I bring a new article, a podcast, a video to the virtual table to review, react, and find ways to create better content faster. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? All right, Pascal. Now, I have to give you a a bit of a heads up here, a bit of an admission. This 
actually probably could have been just another news item because it, it, it is in fact an, a longer news item rather than technically a piece of content that we would normally review but the subject matter the headline and the the thrust of the article just highlights one of the things that just really rubs me up about marketing today and i know i've discussed this on the podcast before but this is one of the most perfect examples of it and so i did want to dip in dip dip into this as well again so the article is in marketing week it's by lucy tesserus and the headline is domino merges digital and marketing teams now when i see a headline like that my original thought my initial thought is well they should never have been separate in the first place <laughs> do you know uh so so that i immediately know that there's going to be something that will wind me up in this this article and the byline says former costa coffee cmo sarah Barron has a, has been appointed to lead the restructured team filling the role which has been vacant since ex mcdonald's marketer emily summers departed last march and what they're going to do is they're going to bring the digital team under the remit of marketing for the first time as it looks to support increased digital investment and drive growth. And, you know, again, I, I sit here and, and I think we have this big problem with marketing constantly these days that it's just about communications. You never hear people talking about the customer. You never hear people talking about the product or about the price, or about the distribution. It's always about the communication. And, and digital has always been seen as this, well, the digital is the electronic bit, and the traditional is the paper bit, just for the sake of argument. Either printed stuff in magazines or printed stuff on billboards, and digital is the digital stuff on um, websites and digital screens instead of uh, uh, paper billboards. And yet we, we never talk about any of that other stuff. We never talk about any of that other stuff. If you were doing marketing properly, your marketing strategy would be, who's my customer? What's the customer's problem? How do we solve that customer's problem with a product or a service? How do we price it? How do we distribute it? And then we, dis then we go out there and we promote it either digitally or traditionally. So it's all part of the same process. But for some reason, over the years, we've almost devalued the the, the profession by splitting it off into these different areas so digital's over here traditional's over here and we might even have a completely different team doing product development and on the on the one hand this could be a good thing that finally finally people have realized that it's all part of the same process and we're starting to very slowly put it back together and maybe that is a good thing in the long run but the fact that they're shouting about it in news headlines just suggests to me that people don't actually see it like that and it's almost oh what's happening here they're merging these things together no that's actually a good thing they should never have been separated in the first place and and it says further down into the, in the in the article the newly merged marketing digital and communications team will be headed by cmo blah 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 the newly merged marketing digital and communications team that's all the same thing it should just be the newly merged marketing team i see this especially in financial services pascal i see head head titles of marketing people which will say something like head of marketing proposition and digital they're all part of the same thing 
Just call them head of marketing. This whole chunking up of the discipline, to me, has devalued marketing. And I just hope that despite the sensational headlines, that this is the first step we get to bringing it all back together. Yeah, so thanks very much for this uh, lovely rant, Roger Edwards. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, just listeners are having a bit of a chuckle. Funny, when I, when I kind of got ready for this recording and I saw the headline, but of course, as we've shared many times with, our, with you, of you as listeners, you know, we don't uh, communicate or discuss. We just go for our findings of the week. And I saw the headline very quickly and I did frown thinking, that's a strange statement. You know, and like you, my reaction was, well, it would be fascinating to know the history. How did it happen? How, and what was the difference in people's heads and duties and functions between digital and marketing? I, I'm really struggling to understand, was, was digital seen more as the IT department of sort? Uh, it's fascinating really to understand the, the, the thinking behind it. But I think uh, you're right. It, it, you know, good that, that they, they are doing it. And I think it's a lesson for all in terms of making sure that anyone that is in the, in the business of communicating with uh, the customer should be part of the same team or certainly have uh, be doing the same. I have the same views, uh, Roger, with customer service. Do you know our customer services after sales care, which is like almost a separate unit to maybe people working in marketing or even working in sales? Yeah, I, I did ask. I remember having a conversation with somebody fairly high up in a in a SMCG uh, FMCG company, and he did say actually that the reason why they split off digital and marketing originally was when social media started developing and and digital stuff started coming along. A lot of the more traditional companies that had been embedded within TV advertising and print advertising and and outdoor billboard advertising weren't really convinced about things like social media ever taking off. And therefore, they almost had to create a digital team to almost say, this is something we do have to look at. Because had they just left it to the traditional people, maybe they would have been slow adopters. Mm. So I guess maybe I can see if that was the reason why they did do it originally, it was just to get digital in through the door and starting to use it quicker. But now that we've all realized that actually it's just part and parcel of the same tactical communications piece, then it genuinely does belong all back together. And that could be one of uh, the few, you know, kind of good points from 2020 where people have had to come to the, those conclusions perhaps sooner. So in fact, what Domino's is doing um, early this year, maybe without COVID, not no wishing you know, to, to overstate it, um, would have happened in 2023, 24. So they've brought that forward and clearly they're bringing the right people on board as well. Absolutely right. So Pascal, What's your content this week? So I've gone back to an article again, and uh, this will not surprise you, but it's with um, content marketing. An article written by Robert Rose from the Content Marketing Institute. I'm a big fan. He really helps all of us reflect and think through sometimes changes and, and what we need to be doing in the future. And he kind of captured his thinking around the impact of last year's um, events, you know, that we're still going through what happened to business, but also the need to be more digital 
strangely enough they need to yes. create more content and sometimes for some organization they need to be a bit braver by going ahead sooner than planned or sooner than they felt ready with regard to hosting webinars and virtual events and it's reflecting on this idea of demand generation for content marketing in the next decade in terms of what 2020 has brought forward so I would highly recommend people read you know, the article. The um, I won't give it too, too many spoilers, but it's, it's one that you can read more than once and, and reflect on it. But what he's suggesting is that there's two main lessons really from 2020. Number one, the need to provide a personal and personalized service to your to your customers, and that should be an an experience. I know it's it's called content marketing, but actually, what you what you desire to create and be the architecture of is an online experience. So that's number one. Number two, the realization that most organization, uh, using his words, are destined to communicate the way they are organized. Fascinating, isn't it? Because bear in mind mm. what you just said a moment ago. Once again, you know, meeting of minds. What he's saying is that if your organization is organized in silos, then you're going to communicate in that manner, and actually, that would be to the detriment of your customers' experience and, of course, the success down the line. So, the lesson of 2020, in addition to personal personalized service, find a way to de-silo your organization. It's not an elegant term, but I think it says it all. And find ways to make sure that this need to communicate and create an experience is a, a desire to be good at it is shared across the whole of the organization, not not the bit where on the door it says marketing. You know, So uh, that's kind of interesting. The other thing that it does in the article is share some interesting findings. They did a survey of their, their members around what kind of content is working and how is it different to previous years, bearing mind the impact of the 2020 year and so he shared you know it split the, the customer journey as i tend to do the what i call the before during and after or the awareness consideration uh, and purchase mode um, so if we start with awareness what has worked well for the members of the content marketing institute are blogs and articles at 72%, videos next at 66%, and podcast at 60%. So to raise awareness and to be discovered, this has worked well for the customers. For the consideration, when people are choosing between you and the others, webinars are, are the number one at 53%, followed by ebooks and white papers. And then for people to make the decision to use you and to go for the purchase mode, they found that case studies have worked well, virtual events and white papers again. So great great article to, to reflect on. And his closing statement, I'm going to read out to you, is as follows. Perhaps we'll see that 2020 is the year we saw content marketing work. Now, all we have to do is evolve to be the best in the world. That's no small task, but it's time. The race is on. Lots to, lots to uh, analyze and think about there, Pascal. Mm. Again, again, you know, the silo aspect, is, is similar to what I was discussing in my own piece of content there, that a lot of companies, because they've siloed product and, and marketing and digital, when in reality it's all part of the same process, can actually hinder your overall success. Interesting that they say this is the year we should finally get content right. Certainly from our news items this week and last week and any week, and everybody's into content. You know, there's new podcasts, there's new videos. You know, maybe I can't remember which person said this sort of content overload thing. It was one of the uh, famous American content marketing people. Um, content overload is 
it's it's all very well saying that you're going to create more content and this is the year we're going to get it right. You've still got to stand out mm. amongst all of that other stuff that people are piling into the market. And in order to stand out, you've really got to understand your customer and work out how to really engage them and solve their problem. And, and maybe the key to that, as we've said, is if you have that joined up thinking from your research through to your product, through to your price, through to your actual communication, that will give you the advantage to stand out. Whereas if you have all of these different fragmented people not really talking to each other, then your content is going to come across as fragmented and perhaps not actually on target or not standing out. And therefore, you'll just add to the noise rather than rise above it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think what Robert Rose in his article is warning us against is this idea of uh, content as a task to be completed as soon as possible with uh, the least amount of pain and suffering as possible. This is so 2010 as far as is concerned. What 2020 has allowed people to do is demonstrate to their seniors, perhaps people in a boardroom who didn't really believe uh, in, in, in that kind of uh, way of thinking that when there was no choice last year but to be digital, to actually take you know the, the leap of faith in terms of doing webinars for the first time and more that to engage somebody and create an experience does work and that to put all that effort into content the same degree you would in other business functions from hr to finance to health and safety and so on then you will see the results for your business yeah so that was actually quite um, hard, hard hitting those two content uh, pieces weren't they yeah it'd be interesting to see what everybody listening and watching to the show today thinks of that. So please do let us know. Add a comment into the YouTube stream or add a comment on Twitter, wherever you want to comment. Just let us know what you think of these topics. Do you feel as passionately about it as Pascal and I do? And just to move on to making life easier as content creators, let's go to the next segment, which is marketing tech and apps. And in this segment, every week, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb that can make life easier as a content creator and marketer. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? All right, I thought I'd try something a little bit different. Up until now, Pascal, most of the apps and, and bits of tech that I've brought to the table are things that I've actually got myself and I've used myself. Um, what I thought I would do over the next few episodes is, is introduce pieces of tech or apps that I haven't got, but I want. And I either want them and I'm probably going to get them, or I want them and I probably don't need them, but I still want them, if you get what I mean. So the first thing is, and I've been doing a little bit of research recently because I need to buy a new key light. And so I'm doing quite a lot of video these days, including this as well. It's nice to have lighting on your face just to brighten yourself up. And I've had these um, key lights for about four years now. And they're those ones that come in these gigantic sort of black bins and the light is is quite a big chunky bulb and it takes up a lot of space you know there are there are a good three or four feet wide and and deep and square uh, and they sit on top of tripods and and the ones that i've got aren't very flexible you, you you can turn them on or you can turn them off and that's pretty much it there's no variance in the level of light so i've been doing a bit of research and i've come across one that is actually favored by gamers people who stream themselves and it's 
an Elgato key light. Now, the beauty of this, from what I can see, is it's very slim. It's only a couple of inches deep, probably about the same width as, as one of the key lights that I have. But the beauty is it takes up less space and you can control the sort that the size of the uh, of the illumination from either the dimmest setting all the way up to the brightest so i've really got my eye on the elgato key light i think that i will probably buy one or two of these anybody who's listening or watching the show if you think no no roger for goodness <laughs> sake don't there's there's a better option then please let me know in the next uh, week or so before i actually press buy online but it looks to me as if for the smallish room that I work from, it looks to me as if this might be the uh, the key light for me. Now, the second one, and this is the one that I want, but I don't need, but I do genuinely like the look of this, and it's a DG, DGI Pocket 2. It's a new style of camera, and it sort of fits, Pascal, between a big DSLR professional style camera at one end of the spectrum and probably a GoPro and an action camera at the other end of the spectrum. Now, as we know, the, the great thing about DSLR cameras, professional cameras, is you've got the depth of field, the different interchangeable lenses, control over all the things like aperture and, and focus and this, that and the other. Whereas a GoPro tends to do all of that for you. You don't get the depth of field, but it's remarkably sharp and it's very good at capturing, capturing action. And GoPros tend to have a lot of built-in stabilization because they're action cameras, whereas I guess the bigger cameras don't. And you need to maybe think about putting them on a gimbal or, or, or something, a tripod, to make the camera shake less obvious. Now, this DGI Pocket 2 is genuinely little. It's, you know, it, it will fit in your pocket. It's smaller than an iPhone. It's almost like a stick with a little camera on top of it. But the camera is on a gimbal. And it's minute, but it can take 4K footage at 60 frames per second. Plus, it can do 1080p and, and slow motion and all of that sort of stuff. But in terms of stability, some of the shots that I've seen of this thing being used on YouTube, you, you, you would think that it was one of those professional cameras on a very, very, very expensive gimbal or one of those you know those rails that keep keep things uh, keep things still uh, and, and it just looks remarkable and it can do slow motion and and it's got depth of feel and all of this sort of thing but you know what i've got a dslr camera and i've got a gopro and i don't really need this but pascal it looks really really cool so again, I'd love to hear from anybody watching the show. Uh, should I just say sod it and buy the damn thing and just play with it? The, it's the DGI Pocket 2. Or again, no, Roger, it's actually doesn't live up to the hype. It's actually a waste of time. You're all right with your GoPro, mate. You're all right with your DSLR. So let me know what you think. No, you're Pascal. right. It does, it does <laughs> look uh, pretty good, actually. And you know, it's, it's so hard. You know, it's part of uh, our, our lives as content marketers and, and content producers, temptation. Um, but every time I want a new bit of kit, or I want something new, I look at the two massive crates of uh, essentially kit that I don't use anymore as a reminder that, you know, sometimes it's, it's that temptation, isn't it? And then you've got to really put together almost like a business case as if you would if you wanted to ask your boss for the budget, you know? <laughs> yes, absolutely right. So what you got for us this week? 
So I've got two things that are really are the result of my own personal endeavors, particularly um, last month and the month before. As you know, I launched a um, kind of quite substantial video uh, interview campaign called 40 Ways to Tell 2020 to Get Lost. And I had the pleasure of interviewing 40 people, sharing a number of advice from well-being to content creation to public speaking and more. And I worked a YouTube channel quite hard, I have to say. And then once the videos were edited, put, put on YouTube, they were then embedded into my WordPress website. And this is where I was a bit disappointed. Now, um, you'll know that I've been using Vimeo a lot longer than YouTube just because of my legacy as a filmmaker and video producer. So I was looking at new ways to get more value from YouTube. And the issue with YouTube, when you copy and paste the embed code, the embed code certainly for my website was not responsive. That is to say that you know the, the video size and the way in which it would occupy the space on the web page would not stretch and adapt to the size of the web page. So the way in which the code was given to me originally by YouTube, the, the video uh, thumbnail, the play, would, would look small. I was trying different ways to make it look bigger, but then the size was too big for some web pages. It was a nightmare until I came across this great website called Embed Responsively. Embed Responsively allows you to copy and paste your YouTube URL and you get a full code to make this video fully responsive so it can adapt, adjust, and stretch or minimize itself no matter the size of the, the browser, the, whether it's mobile phones, and so on and so forth. And I have to say, I was really impressed. It's done freely by some coders uh, out there. It works with uh, Vimeo as well. It works with things like Google Maps and other form of API. But uh, it was just a great solution because I was so disappointed by what you could get natively from YouTube to embed your video. So that's number one, embed responsively if you are looking to add video content to your blog and website. The second item is not new to anyone, I would imagine. It is Wikipedia. But I got an email a few days ago telling me that Wikipedia had just turned 20. And Roger, I was blown away. I had no idea that Wikipedia had been with us for as long uh, as it had. And I just went onto their kind of celebration page and discovered things that I didn't know about Wikipedia. So to begin with, it is now available in 306 languages, Roger. Wow. I, I just, wow. I didn't know. I didn't know, right? <laughs> That's yeah. just incredible. It is run as it is you know, well known by volunteers. They have to, to date 280,000 volunteers adding content, doing the editing, the kind of vetting of content and so on. And in general, they get billions and billions of visits per month. Uh, so I wanted to kind of give Wikipedia a shout out. I know it's not a new tech and app, but for many people out there who are looking at content curation and collaboration, it's a great source. Uh, I think it really, really is worthy of your consideration. But also because it's the anniversary, I hope you don't mind, Roger, but I would like to invite people to, if you are regular Wikipedia users, a small donation via PayPal, a few pounds, a few dollars, a few euros can go a long way to make sure they continue for another 20 years. Absolutely agree with that. Um, I do contribute to Wikipedia, not regularly, but regularly enough. Um, I, I, as you say, bit of PayPal here, bit of PayPal there. We do use Wikipedia so much. I mean, once once upon a time, people would say it was extremely inaccurate, but I think on the whole, it's pretty good now. Um, I don't think you can complain about it. And it's such a massively useful free resource that I think, you know, 
most people would pay a subscription for it if they absolutely had to. So it makes sense to contribute to them if you do use Wikipedia a lot. Interesting you said that about the embed mm. of, of YouTube videos. Do you use WordPress for your website? I do, yeah. Yeah. I spent a whole of yesterday afternoon going through my most recent videos that I'd embedded into my website and altering them because all of a sudden – the ones that I've done over the, maybe the last six months just look really wonky and out of phase. And I think it's something to do with this new block system they have with with WordPress. And, and the ones that I'd actually embedded using the URL from YouTube just looked rubbish, whereas some of the ones that I'd put in over six months ago were actually just HTML code that I'd copied and pasted from YouTube as opposed to the URL. And I actually did spend yesterday afternoon going through and just putting the um, HTML code for each of them in, and now they look good again. So I just wonder whether there's some glitch going on in in WordPress at the moment, which makes embedding look Yeah, rubbish. no, it's possible. So that's why, to be honest with you now, I, I rely solely on that website, Embed Responsively, because yeah. uh, it really makes my life and yours and many others out there so much easier. It was just, you know, when I, when I just embedded as per the textbook, the YouTube videos, the URLs and the embed code, it was tiny. The, the video was tiny compared to the overall article. And I was trying all sorts of different ways to kind of hack into the code and put different dimensions. And I thought, this is not working. And then, well, Google helped. And so did the team behind uh, Embed Responsively. So I'm happy now. <laughs> there we go. Well, talking of people who make life easier, who invent things, shall we move on to This Week in History? Let's do that. In 1884, the first volume of the Oxford English Dictionary is created. It took over 40 years until the full dictionary was published in April 1928, with over 400,000 words and phrases. Well, in 1926, Scottish inventor John Logie Baird gives a demonstration of the world's first working television system in London. Two years later, he also achieved the first television submission between London and New York. In 1962, Ranger 3 is launched to take pictures of the surface of the moon for 10 minutes prior to crashing on the Earth's satellite. Due to malfunctions, the spacecraft's missed the moon by 22,000 miles. And in 1969, the Beatles make their last public performance giving an impromptu concert on the roof of their London recording studio. And in doing so, the band marked the end of an era for many fans. In 1983, the Lotus Development Corporation releases Lotus 123 for IBM computers. Lotus was able to develop 123 because the creators of VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet, did not patent their software. Oh, well, in 1988, the computer game Tetris is released in the US as a PC game. Created by Russian software engineer Alexei Pajitnov in 1984, it is one of the best-selling video game franchises of all time. In 1999, the Blair Witch Project premieres at the Sundance Film Festival and becomes one of the most successful independent films of all time, reviving the found footage style later used by successful horror films. And in 19, no, in 2007, sorry, six years after Windows XP, Windows Vista is released by Microsoft. The launch was marred by countless problems, and despite two Soviet pack upgrades, Vista's reputation never recovered. Windows. <laughs> I shudder just being reminded of it. Did you have, you know, the unfortunate experience of using Vista? I think we skipped Vista. <laughs> I definitely remember XP, 
Um, I don't remember Vista. So may, maybe You're by lucky. the time we, deci- we decided to upgrade from Windows XP, whatever came after Vista had, had, had come along. So, uh, but I do remember reading about all the problems it caused. So you went, did you go from XP? Was it then Windows 7, 8, 10? When one of those? It was something. It was probably yeah. something like that, wasn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, I'm sure many of our viewers and listeners will agree it was just horrible. There's always been, you know, issues and, and glitches with new releases and new uh, upgrades of my operating system. But this was bad. It looked bad. The visuals, the interface was bad. And as you heard in, in a little news item, you had to keep upgrading and putting what they call the service pack over and over again. And frankly, when we moved on to whatever came next, I think I'm going to say it was Windows 7. It was such a relief. But people were saying, can we not just go back to XP, please? Yeah. <laughs> I want Windows 3.1. <laughs> Tetris, Pascal. Tetris. Definitely one, not only one of the best-selling video games of all time, but one of the most utterly addictive. Now, I remember we had a Game Boy, mm. which we had Tetris on, and it was um, it was a colour Game Boy, so it must have been a little bit further down the line. And we actually had to buy a second Game Boy and a second Tetris cartridge because the fight in our household to play Tetris was so fraught. We both wanted to play it. We All three of us wanted to play it. And, and having one Game Boy with one Tetris cartridge wasn't enough, so we had to buy more. It's, it was just a, a brilliant game. It's been copied, and there's been countless copyright issues with the game from, from the get-go. But um, the simplicity yet, uh, how addictive it was, uh, I would agree. I'm not surprised to hear it was the best-selling you know, franchise of all times. Uh, absolutely ridiculously addictive. I mean, you could, you could pick it up, start playing, and hours would go by. Hours would go by, and you were oblivious to anything that was happening around you. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I can't recall whether I did manage to go very far, but I've, over time you can obviously beat your own scores. But uh, it was always in the moment of panic where you, you, you made one mistake, and then that was it, and everything, everything would just fall apart, and then it would, it would go faster and faster until eventually you would crash at the top of the screen. So I had the pleasure of using Lotus 1-2-3. I remember that from the early days of, uh, of computing. But um, I couldn't help but have a smile when I read, obviously, the, the, about John um, Logie Baird. I mean, wow. I mean, without that incredible you know, Scottish inventor and engineer, we and I couldn't have a conversation about Disney Plus and, and video games, could we? It all has to start somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, it's almost like your family tree, you trace it back to your ancestors. You know, you, you trace back the person who invented TV or the person who invented air travel or the person who invented the microprocessor. The history of the world depends upon these people. You know, we talk about time travel in the film segment quite a bit. You went back in time and uh, interfered with their inventions or 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 change their path you know you could change the entire history of the world it's it's quite scary stuff i, th- I read a um a um book or i saw a movie i can't I recall which way where somebody would, would ask a question what would the world look like and be like if we did not invent color or color tv and, and colored uh, computer screens and so on so it will always be black and white we didn't, somehow we didn't invent color what would it be like nowadays Goodness, great. We, would that ever have happened, though? Because we live in a colourful world. 
And because television didn't reflect that colourful world, would we have ever put up with it just being black and white? We would have strove to find a way to make it colour. We would have, but that didn't stop. And this is a, actually an improvised segue, so don't be too impressed, I've used listeners. But that didn't stop <laughs> the Blowish Project, obviously, who was filmed um, in black and white to um, be one of that, you know, that incredible success in 1999. I remember going to the movies and being completely taken by the storyline and uh, all the way to the very end. Oh, it was one of those great pieces of filmmaking but great pieces of marketing as well because they did that whole separate documentary was which was actually part of the whole experience uh, but yeah I, I i i hear what you're saying one of my favorite other horror, horror films is called the mist mm. it's a stephen it's a stephen king film and that was actually re released on dvd with a special bonus black and white version and I have to say that the black and white version is actually scarier than the colour version, partially because the black and white version covers up a few of the dodgy special effects. Uh, but yeah, interesting, interesting thoughts there. One of, one of the things that struck me again about these news items today is two of them, the Oxford English Dictionary one. My immediate thought there was another piece of pop culture, the Blackadder I think it was series three of Blackadder, the third, where they had Robbie Coltrane playing Dr. Johnson, and they're trying to replicate the dictionary. That's what came into my mind there. And the Beatles making their last public performance mm. on top of a building. What came to my mind then was probably about 20 years later, U2 for one of their sing singles. And That's right. I think it might have been Where the Streets Have No Name. I'd have to go and check. They actually replicated that whole thing by doing it on the on the um, roof of a building. And that was because the Beatles had done it. So all of these bits of news not only trigger memories about the actual piece of news itself, but related pop cultural events as well. Yeah, very, very true. Well, it's, so it's a, a very, very enjoyable segment this week in history and um, you know, long may continue. Let's move on, if you don't mind, Roger, to our creator's shout-outs. And in this segment, Roger and I take a moment to give content creators out there a shout out, those who are working hard to bring value to their community. So Roger, who is in the spotlight today? Okay, um, this person isn't actually in my network. Um, normally when we do these content shout outs, it's people that we actually know personally or it's a friend of a friend. Now, this person I'm shouting out today is called Matthew Dix. I first came across Matthew Dix on a podcast called The Moth, and The Moth is a storytelling podcast. Indeed, I think I've done it as part of the um, of the marketing tech and apps before in the past. And it's basically a show, a live show. Uh, well, it was until COVID, where people would come on stage and tell stories that last between five and 10 minutes. And those stories could be personal experiences, business experiences, uh, love interests, whatever it might be. And I like The Moth because it's all about how to tell stories. And as a result of listening to The Moth, I did a bit more Google searching around this Matthew Dix guy and actually came across a book that he'd written all about storytelling bought that book, read it, and only recently this week realised that the guy has his own podcast as well as appearing on this moth thing. And the podcast is called Speak Up Storytelling. Now, I've yet to dive massively deeply into the back history of this podcast. And, and effectively, what he does is he'll take a story that's been told on the moth or something like that, and he'll dissect it 
and say what was good about it and where he thinks that person could improve. But the reason I've chosen Matthew this week isn't technically for a storytelling reason. It's because he also, in some of his podcasts, does reviews of films, uh, which has a nice little tie into, of course, what we do here on Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. And his latest episode is a review of Wonder Woman 1984, which we have done as part of the show in the past. But what I like about the way Matthew did it is, again, he takes it apart from the point of view of the storytelling. Right. Now, we watched uh, Wonder Woman 1984 over Christmas, didn't particularly think it was a very good movie, thought some of the direction was a bit flat, thought, just thought, the, just thought that despite the hype and despite the spectacle and despite the fact that it had been delayed, that it, it was just not a good movie. And Matthew dissects it from the point of view of how the story is put together. And when you hear this guy literally slate the storytelling, <laughs> you realise why it is a poor movie, not only from the point of view of how it was directed and how it was shot, but even from how the story was written. So if you want something slightly different, if you want people to analyse a film, not for its special effects or its for direction or its for its cinema, cinematography, but actually from how the story was constructed, then take a look at Matthew Dix's podcast. It's called Speak Up Storytelling. And as always, we'll put the link in the show notes. Superb choice. And I think you and I, by now, people realize if they've been following Two Kicks and Marketing podcast for a while, that we're very, very keen on storytelling as part of the ingredients to your content marketing. So today, I would like to give David Kilkelly a shout out. David is the founder and director of Bling Back, as well as Remote Video Team. You will know David yourself, Roger, for the man who worked with me on some of the video content for the Upreneur Summit. So I've had the pleasure of working with David, but also across 2020, have been so, so impressed with uh, the amount of content he's produced and published. This is by far, uh, in a way, a long overdue shout out. So David is a video marketing specialist and producer director, and he has a great YouTube channel. He has a, a few playlist series, if you prefer the term. So one is called The Content Club, which is brilliant, where he has interviews with content creators and content marketers. He has a growing playlist on video production tips from microphones to tripods to mobile phones and so on. And he also has quite an extensive list of video marketing and strategy because does a bit of uh, deep diving into some of the techniques that can make your video marketing and video creation work harder for you. But the reason I wanted to give David a shout out today is because of his recent recent effort called Create 2021. It's a superb, superb video message. I would say it's almost like a manifesto. It's almost like a, a call to arms for all business owners and marketing directors out there to make 2021 the year where they create and write their own story. Back to your point a moment ago, um, Roger. The video is about two minutes. It's superbly edited, as you would expect. The, the footage combines recent footage, David in action, if you will, as well as uh, some of his works. He also plays to uh, his portfolio. But because it's only two minutes, I don't want to spoil the, the sheer pleasure of also listening. It's superbly written because he does the narration uh, over the, uh, as an overlay onto the video. 
I've personally watched it about three times because I find the content just so, so uplifting and this great call to action to make 2021 the year where you write your story and create it for yourselves. Yeah, David's a really good bloke and he knows his video, doesn't he? Mm. And yeah, I remember him from the Youpreneur Summit. He's also been on my podcast. You can't miss him at the Youpreneur Summit. He's about two (laughs) feet taller than everybody else, which probably helps because he needs to be towering above everybody in order to get the decent shots, doesn't he? That's why, yeah. I never realised that. Because I'm at average height, so that's why my shots are so you know, kind of mundane, but his always be more special. That's why. So, Roger, we spoke about storytelling. We spoke about video production and film. What's left is talk about film marketing. Definitely. Here we go. The best bit. Right, Roger. I'm going to put to you that 1984 is one of the best years ever for filmmaking and film goers. Not just because of the recent Wonder Woman movie you mentioned, obviously as part of uh, the content creator Shanta, but 1984 saw the release of Purple Rain, Gremlins, Temple of Doom, Karate Kid, Terminator, Neverending Story, Revenge of the Nerds, Dune. But more importantly, 1984 saw the release of Ghostbusters. Ah, Ghostbusters and the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. That Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man was actually quite scary, despite the fact that it was basically just a great big white Michelin man with a with a with a hat on, towering above the of the city. Uh, yeah, I mean, 1984. Lots of memories from the point of view of childhood. Lots of memories from the point of view of being at school, but lots of great music in the charts as well. Mm. That was probably the pinnacle of 1980s music around that time as well, wasn't it? And of course, not only was Ghostbusters a great film, but it also had an amazing, amazing theme tune, which I think got into the top 10, if not topped the top 10 in the charts as well. So good film, good soundtrack. Yeah, and for me, uh, I probably got to listen to the song for many weeks and months before we managed to go to the movies and see the film. So by the time we went to see Ghostbusters, I was about to implode with joy when the movie <laughs> starts with the song that you heard on the radio for weeks and months, you know, Ray Parker Jr. Who, and and I think we, we learned the lines of the, the, the song by heart, I'm sure. It's one of those embarrassing <laughs> examples of being in the cinema and people actually shouting out Ghostbusters at the appropriate <laughs> point during the song. And, and they actually, you know, apart from the usual crunching of popcorn and, and snapping of um, uh, hot dogs and stuff like that, most people sit and watch films quite quietly, except during songs like Ghostbusters, and they're all shouting it out. And you're almost like, should I be joining in with this? Or I probably was joining in, actually, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, this movie uh, has everything. It's got obviously comedy with some, you know, the superb um, actors. It's got elements of horror. It's got elements, obviously, of special effects, which back in the days looked, you know, really, really, really impressive. But it was also one where, you know, we saw a different side of New York, which uh, oddly, most films are filmed in and around California and Los Angeles and so on. And this was actually, for me, certainly as a young moviegoer, so, you know, New York in a different light altogether yeah i mean even films that are purported to be in new york often tend to be filmed elsewhere don't they like vancouver pretending to be new york Mm. or or chicago pretending to be new york but uh, 
to actually genuinely see it in danger was actually quite good. So I don't know whether there are people out there um, alive who have not seen Ghostbusters. I don't think that's possible. But um, just in case you know you haven't and you are following this review and this comment on the marketing of the film, you feel like watching it, you, you're in for, for, for a treat. Um, interestingly, the the movie, the final version, had a lot of scenes deleted. And, and mm -hmm. I'm still longing for the director's cut, whatever term you want to use, Roger, to see the full version of the film. Uh, this movie was meant to be for adults only. Well, because you had Bill Murray, because you had Dana Croyd, Harold Ramis, and and the others who are really sort of life as stand-up comedians with, um, well, a, a language that was really for, for adults. And some of the jokes in the film sometimes let parents little little concerned about, you know, having their kids, kids in the theatre rooms as well. Yeah, because... I actually always quite like those films where they're almost <laughs> playing to two different audiences. I used to like that when I was taking my son to the cinema and we used to go and see a film, maybe a cartoon like Up or something like that, where mainly the jokes and the and the storyline were aimed at children, but some of the some of the dialogue and some of the jokes are just a little bit above the kids' heads. But we, we but we know what it means. We know mm. what it means. And and yeah, this this is just taking it that little step further but i didn't know what you just said there that it was originally aimed at being a, a more adult movie and i and i didn't know there was a load of deleted stuff as well i wonder whether that actually still exists or the reason we haven't got a director's cut is because it genuinely has disappeared forever yeah, you can you can get access to some uh, if you have the special edition DVD or Blu-ray, but there isn't like a constructed film with all, all, all the extra scenes. And I always think that in the context of watching it at home, that, that would be just brilliant to see that to see that the full version. So, I mean, there's also uh, other characters. I mean, people remember primarily, obviously, um, the four you know kind of Ghostbusters together with Ernie Hudson. But I love Rick Moranis in that film. Each time I watch it and he comes on screen playing this kind of goofy, geeky accountant, I literally cry with laughter. Yeah, we all we all knew somebody at school who <laughs> was like that, had the glasses and had the goofy aspect about them. And I'm pretty sure that for probably about 18 months after Ghostbusters came out, whoever that individual at school was effectively got <laughs> yeah. uh, caricatured by what we'd seen on screen. For the producers and directors, I think it was quite a coup to get Sigourney Weaver to agree to be in a you know really kind of a comedy horror comedy and she really really uh, went for it uh, i think she, she was just pleased to be asked and playing uh, what would, would be called zool the gatekeeper you know? <laughs> yes <laughs> zool i remember that and and of course she was famous around that time because of aliens and everything mm. like that so yeah you're absolutely right she was a, a bit of a, a steal for the producers there what what I like about, about the film as well is that the, the the acting and the actors just go for it. You know, they, they don't hold back, and I think that would have been uh, quite enjoyable for the director, uh, even or Ivan Reitman. But um, if you look at uh, the special effects and the, the behind the scenes stuff, because by and large, you know, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd were comedians they never never followed the script were improvising all the time mm -hmm. so part of it was having a nightmare to direct but also you probably got a better result for it i think that you can i mean I, I, as a director yourself you'll know what it must be like 
to have out of control uh, actors. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure that they ended up with a better film as a result of that. But I imagine at the time, you know, the controlling those two on set must have been an absolute nightmare. And again, there must be some incredible outtakes I would have expected yeah. from the filming of this where they perhaps went a little bit too far or they effed and blinded a little bit too much or something. And I'd love to see some of that footage. So, I mean, it's hard to, to suggest to you that Ghostbuster was the, the best film of 1984. It's tricky because what is the measure? But what I will say is when we used to be able to go to a Comic-Con um, in London and other places, there was always a group of people dressed as the Ghostbusters with the proton packs and, you know, and, and the kind of the traps and so on, walking around the, the, the kind of the convention centers because it's left an, an impact, you know, not just in terms of the film, but also the look, the merchandising, the, the logo. I think people know what the Ghostbusters logo is around the world, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so iconic and, again, so simple. And it's and it's a badge as well, isn't it? It's mm. I mean I mean all logos can be badges, but this one was almost designed to be a badge, in my opinion. It was it was perfect. Interesting, you made the comment about you know the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man that attacks <laughs> the building very much like King Kong. And I mean, I think it works. I think by the time you get to that point of, of the movie, you, you're ready to accept any kind of uh, silliness and, and comedy. But the directors actually were quite worried that it would not work. So they had actually uh, other endings, including a big, big old fight, a proper normal fight against uh, Gosa, the ruler of the sixth dimension. But um, I'm glad they kept it with the Marshmallow Man. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because at the time, my elder sister had just moved to America. Well, she'd, she'd moved to America a few years earlier. And I think the state, I might be wrong with this. And, and if I'm wrong, please put a comment in below. I think the Stay, Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man is actually based on the Pillsbury Dough Man, which was a similar, if, if not identical looking uh, character. And I imagine that they either decided not to try and license the Pillsbury Dough man to use in the movie or the makers of Pillsbury Dough didn't want the risk of the brand reputation of of portraying the Pillsbury Dough man as a great big monster ransacking and destroying New York might have had a detrimental effect on their brand so they mm. came up with the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man which everybody knew was the Pillsbury Dough man but didn't really want to admit it um, and, and if I'm wrong about that then I apologize but that 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 was what stuck in my mind but a, a, a great climax to the film when when something so bizarrely odd can actually look so actually quite terrifying so much so that, um, I mean, what I will say very, ever so briefly, Roger, in the context of this segment, I didn't think the sequel was as good, you know, Ghostbusters 2, but I'm very much looking forward to Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's what mm -hmm. happens to be directed by the son of Ivan Reitman, uh. Jason Reitman. And, and I don't know, I, I just got a feeling that it's going to really, really work, all, all that nostalgia, and of course, celebrating uh, a movie that was made you know, such a long time ago. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. So 
we better talk about the marketing <laughs> of it, hadn't we, as well? <laughs> we should. But do you know what, what was interesting? As I was remembering Ghostbusters and chuckling to myself as I was going through the scenes that happened, I think, to be fair, um, Bill Murray probably got all the best lines in, in the films, but um, his exchange with all the other characters, including uh, Sigourney Weaver, who he's trying to seduce throughout the whole film, uh, is great. But I was wondering whether Ghostbusters, as well as being a horror comedy, Roger, is it also a film about building and marketing a new business. <laughs> Ooh. Well, because if you think about it, we've got uh, friends who've lost their jobs because essentially they were incompetent. They lost their job from university and they borrow money by remortgaging, I think, Dana Croyd's mother's house. Yeah, they yeah, then went yeah. to rent a direct building because that's what they could afford. They invest in TV advertising very, very smartly. So they get that, uh, that TV adverts that the character Sigourney Weaver uh, gets to see. They buy a second-hand vehicle that becomes the um, famous Ecto-1. They get their first high-profile uh, client by trashing the hotel, if you remember. Yeah. <laughs> and then they get into the press, and then everything becomes um, you know, history, and they become a successful um, business. But because they are successful, then they have to face bureaucracy. And then we have the character of Walter Peck, who tries to obviously stop them, and obviously it creates, you know, the, the problem that you see at the end of the film. I just think it's kind of interesting that we've seen the journey of the startup business as well as watching Ghostbusters. Hadn't really thought about <laughs> it like that, Pascal. So congratulations for unraveling such a such deep meaning in in the but you're absolutely right you're i mean when we talk about marketing the films i actually think about the you know the the poster campaigns yep. uh like the, the the no ghosts logo and and the strap line coming to save the world this summer um and you know revealing the ecto-1 in manhattan but of course yeah you're, you're absolutely right we can learn me marketing messages from the construction of the film and and the story that you've yeah. here we go stories again the story you've just taken us through those steps is is absolutely so are we going to suggest lessons. to our viewers and listeners that to learn more about marketing you have to watch watch ghostbusters as well as read uh, you know much more important books about marketing Absolutely. You could probably learn more from watching Ghostbusters than you can from buying a $47 course, if truth be told. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you for reminding me about the No Ghost, no ghost um, poster, because when this was released, there, there was nothing else to go with it. That must have been so intriguing. Uh, and, and exciting at the time, you know, when mm. people saw, well, what is it? What's coming? And I wonder whether we don't have enough of that nowadays, you know, that sense of intrigue. I, I wonder whether sometimes everything, so much is revealed so early that for us as uh, film goers or TV series viewers, we don't have the same sense of excitement. Yeah, I think the problem these days is it's, you have to reveal it early because it's impossible to keep it secret um, because it'll always get leaked either deliberately or by accident. Um, but yeah, I think we, we probably do lose some of that anticipation as a result. From the one that I remember as a marketing tactic is the fact that they actually had a real number to ring yeah. to call Ghostbusters. I mean, ultimately, the song was, you know, who are you going to call, you know, Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters. And actually, you could you could call them, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's, again, bit of genius. Maybe that could be the first example of that, that actually happening in a film and being part of the marketing. Ever since then, of course, we've had more dial-in TV shows and 
And, you know, you'll also often see telephone numbers appear on on films. And I've tried phoning a few of these numbers just to see if they have put an answering machine on it or a message. And sometimes they have, which is is really funny. But I'm thinking back, that's probably the fir- one of the first times that that had actually been done as almost like part of the plot, as part of the experience. And I would just love to know how many people actually phoned that number. Yeah, but there's not just that. I mean, if you imagine, so not only could you hear the voices of, at the time, Dana Croyd and Bill Murray, who were really you know, famous in the US, but then you would tell your friends, right? You would say, my God, yeah. just a moment ago. So your friend's got to ring. So that kind yeah. of word of mouth marketing, of our marketing, as you mentioned a moment ago, is probably true. And so much so that um, that song, or, or certainly the, the word, who you're going to call call Ghostbusters, has been used by other brands in, mm-hmm. in, in their own marketing as, as a bit of an, I don't know if it was an homage or, or plagiarism, but uh, many, many um, years ago, when I used to work in travel, and the, my wife Denise worked in travel as well, she worked for a tour operator called Cosmos. So you may vaguely remember, I think they were based not far from you actually, mm. in, the, in the north of, of the UK. And I think in the late 80s, they had a big campaign where it was literally, who are you going to call, call Cosmos, not Ghostbusters. Yes. But they were not the only one. You know, I think that you just you had that um, rhythm that people could kind of piggyback on. Yeah, I, I- these, there's even been something recently, which it was, was something busters. It was as blatant <laughs> as that, you know, dust busters or something like that, as opposed to ghost busters. But I've definitely, definitely heard it done recently. So when you create a song like that, that becomes embedded within the whole marketing ethos of the film, it's bound to get copied and replicated over the years, but it's still... Go. It's it's a bit like we said early on about John Logie Baird inventing the TV. So many marketing campaigns and so many successful brands and products can probably trace their way back to this particular film and back to this particular song. It, it's I love that that sort of family tree mm. image that that you've created today in this uh, in this podcast. No, absolutely, and and I know that through my own research, you know, I discovered something which is very much in the business of filmmaking and, and film going, where there there are there used to be regular conventions where the owners of movie chains or um, theatre chains would be pitched by the different you know creators um, before obviously you had a virtual integration. So what they did do was actually a adver- advert where the characters from Ghostbusters would address via video the owners of different. Uh, movie chains to <laughs> tell them to make sure they would show Ghostbusters. I just think you know this. This is a different time, 1984, where you had to ask the owners of the different cinema chains to make sure your film was featured. Yeah, you just you would have just thought it was an automatic thing. No, it wasn't. You had to kind of negotiate, which is I think yeah. um, quite interesting. So yeah, I mean, not only is it a, a fantastic film to watch as a family, and as we mentioned a moment ago, the adults will laugh at things that the, the kids will miss completely, uh, and vice vice versa. But there's a lot of lessons about you know that era, in 1980s. You know what was available to you in terms of marketing. It was really practical form of marketing, but oddly the characters themselves and the movie itself has lessons in marketing as well which is something that i never thought of until a few days ago 
No, it's uh, that's why I, that's why I love this film marketing segment so much because we get to talk about some of the best films of all time. But we can always, I mean, I'm absolutely blown away by that whole storyline thing that you brought out here about building a business and doing all of the things like facing bureaucracy. Absolute genius, Pascal. <laughs> well, thank you very much. So, Roger, it is time to bring episode 25 to a close. Sadly, we could talk more about whether 1984 was the best year in terms of film and whether Ghostbusters was indeed the best horror comedy of all times. Can I thank you again for being such a wonderful co-host and for all the time you spent on research. And to you, our viewers and listeners, thank you for your amazing support. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. Yeah.